Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so everyone can make sure that they are ready to study the word this evening, ready to uh, focus under the uh, teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. And after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's good that we can come together this evening to study your word, to be strengthened, refreshed by our study of your word, to be reminded of the dynamics of our salvation and the implications of all that took place on the cross and all that transpired in our lives when we trusted in Christ as our Savior. And Father, the more we study, the more we realize how little we know, the more we realize how much more we need to study and learn and probe the depths and the implications of your word in order to have our thinking uh, transformed, overhauled, completely renovated so that uh, we may learn to think as you think and not as the world around us thinks. Father, we pray that God the Holy Spirit would really uh, work in our thinking this evening as we study your word to help us to clearly understand what your word teaches and to see how it applies in our own thinking and in our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Before we get into the next section in Romans 5, I want to take one, hopefully one last class, to sort of wrap up the topic that is a focal point in the first 11 verses of chapter 5. Paul is making his transition, as I pointed out last time, moving from talking about what happened uh, at salvation. At the, at, and for Paul's terminology in Romans, remember, that really means at justification, because he doesn't use that sozo, soterion, word group uh, to refer to phase one justification in Romans. He uses it to refer more to the ongoing spiritual life, not the transformation that takes place at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone. So uh, when we read Romans, we need to understand that for Paul, salvation isn't what we normally, how we normally use it in evangelical patois. It means to be safe from wrath, which is ongoing discipline from God's justice in time. And wrath and phrases like death and life often don't refer to eternal condemnation and eternal death. They refer to the experience of living on the basis of the sin nature in the Christian life and having a uh, death-like life instead of the rich, abundant life that uh, we should have by walking by the Spirit. The first implication Paul pulls on from justification by faith 
is what he identifies as peace with God in verse 1 of chapter 5, and then identifies more clearly as reconciliation, which he almost uses as a synonym for justification when we get to the end of this, these 11 uh, verses. When we get to verse uh, to chapter 5, verse 10, we read, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And I pointed out last time that uh, the reconciliation has to do with what has happened in the past, salvation by his life, meaning his resurrected life. Uh, that is uh, what comes in, and what is the basis doctrinally for understanding the new life that we have, uh, Romans uh, 6.4, walking in newness of life, that's grounded upon, uh, upon the resurrection. In verse 9, which I didn't put up on the screen, we read much more than having now been justified by his blood. So we have that same kind of beginning that we had back in verse 1, having uh, been justified by, by, his, uh, by faith in verse 1 talking about what has already transpired. In verse 10, that shifts from uh, the parallel from having now been justified to uh, being reconciled. This parallel sets up some interesting, uh, uh, interesting implications, but also can open the door to some confusion. And if you read theologies, uh, you discover that it's led various theologians to some different uh, different positions. And so before we finish this section, because reconciliation, we basically move beyond reconciliation now uh, into a different topic, uh, starting in verse 12, I wanted to go back and just review for us the doctrine of, of uh, reconciliation. And in this passage, as I pointed out last time, we see reconciliation as a ground for our assurance that because we have been reconciled uh, to God, we uh, shall be saved by his life, and on that basis we can have present joy, verse 11. Of course, the, re, the mention of rejoicing or joy again is the same verb that we have back in uh, verse 2, uh, rejoicing uh, in hope of the glory of God, and also in verse 3, that we uh, rejoice in tribulations. So Paul ties all this together. The vocabulary is very important for us to understand, and unfortunately that, that verb for rejoice is translated glory in uh, 5.3, which throws us off the track. When we realize it's the same verb in verse 2, verse 3, and then in verse 11, then you see that, that that ties together the beginning of the paragraph, the end of the paragraph, and it's all talking about uh, why we can have real joy right now in our Christian life today, not just looking for that uh, joy in the future as a result of our eventual glorification, but he's focusing on the present uh, tense implications of justification in terms of the joy that comes from reconciliation and how that becomes a foundation, that peace that we have with God becomes a foundation for uh, living the Christian life and understanding the Christian life, which is 
uh, what he gets into uh, full force starting in chapter 6. So what I want to do this this evening is to just go back and review this whole doctrine of of reconciliation as it as we see it in in Romans. Now we did this to some degree back in Colossians one, verse twenty one, uh, verse twenty twenty one uh, focused on the doctrine of reconciliation, and so we approached it from that vantage point when we were in Colossians on Sunday morning several months ago. And this time, what I want to do is approach it from the vantage point of how Paul is addressing it in in uh, in Romans. So one, this really raises um, three que- three basic questions. The first question is, what's the relationship between justification and reconciliation? Now, the reason that's an important question is because justification is something that happens to us, to only believers, only those who express faith alone in Christ alone. Justification is by faith. Justification is only for those who uh, believe on Jesus Christ. In this passage, though, it seems that Paul creates a very close parallel between reconciliation and justification. But then the work of reconciliation is said in 2 Corinthians 5 to be something that occurs at the cross, as it is here in Romans 5 also, not something that occurs in time when an individual puts their faith in Christ. This is what's created basic some basic confusion is, uh, and some of the questions that have been raised uh, relate to the fact that was God um, reconciling the world to himself? In other words, is the world what is reconciled to God, or is God reconciled uh, to the world? And who, in other words, who moves? And then uh, we also have related to this, and it's touched on in Romans 3, the issue of propitiation. What's the relationship between uh, reconciliation and propitiation? Propitiation is said to be something that happens toward God, uh, in terms of his justice and his righteousness, that uh, when he looks at the cross and the death of Christ on the cross, his justice is satisfied. And so God uh, propitiated. That doesn't mean he changes. It means that because his judicial requirements are satisfied, because the penalty for sin is paid, then God's justice is satisfied, so then God is free to graciously bestow salvation upon mankind. So the first question has to do with this relationship between justification and reconciliation. I think that will become clear once we go through reconciliation. Also, what's the relationship between reconciliation and propitiation? And then the third question has to do with this issue of is God reconciling the world or is the is God being reconciled? How, how is, does this work and what are the aspects uh, of this? And I think just to help you understand this at the beginning, what we're going to see is reconciliation has two different aspects to it. One is definitely related to an objective work of God that occurs on the cross that is related to the world, so that the world, is, which is at enmity with God, is in a position of hostility because of the violation of God's righteousness and justice. See, that's where propitiation is going to come in that the world is in this state of hostility 
And God has to change that state from hostility to peace. And that's an objective thing that happens at the cross. And so we'll see as we go through these passages that that dimension of reconciliation is objective and like justification, and here I'm going to drop another another word on you, it's also forensic. And forensic is a term that if you're a CSI fan or NCIS fan, you ought to clearly understand that it has to do with actions in the courtroom. And so what we're talking about is the uh, judicial dimension to reconciliation, which helps us understand why Paul can so closely connect them between Romans 5.9 and, and Romans 5.10. That objective dimension to reconciliation occurs at the cross, and the state of the world is being changed or transformed from being a state of hostility because the, the ju- it's in, previous to the cross, it is in a state of violation of the judicial standard of God's character. And so once God's character is satisfied, that's propitiation, then the world's uh, position of enmity is changed, which doesn't make the world saved, but it makes the inhabitants of the world savable. And therein lies a, a, a very simple expression of a lot of, uh, a lot of difficult uh, theology, and it, it's really just the fact that reconciliation has two aspects to it. One's the objective one, and then the second one is the subjective one that occurs personally. And we see the same kind of thing when we see words like forgiveness, that forgiveness occurred at the cross. We went through an extensive study in Colossians 2, uh, 13 and 14 especially, which talked about the fact that God forgave us by wiping out that certificate of debt that was against us, which is the basically the indictment related to sin, that that is wiped out or canceled by when it is nailed to the cross. And that happened historically back in, in A.D. 33. So that there is a forensic dimension also to forgiveness, that it happens at the cross when Christ pays the penalty, then that certificate of debt, that legal indictment, is wiped out. But that doesn't change people individually. It just it's related to that change of legal relationship to God because the penalty is paid, but that doesn't change the uh, sort of on-the-ground reality of each person's experience of being spiritually dead and being unrighteous. And it's only when we then express faith in Christ then that we uh, receive the imputation of righteousness and are declared justified, and then we receive uh, new life in regeneration and have, have eternal life. And so that those uh, individual uh, uh, subjective aspects are then uh, taken care of. So what I want to do is just go back, look a little bit at these each of these verses and passages from that Aspect so that we just can understand this a little bit more uh, more clearly. In uh, Romans five ten and eleven, we have two different uses of the word uh, reconciled. One in verse ten, one in verse uh, eleven. In verse ten, 
we have the phrase that God, through the death of his son, much more ha- have that, uh, uh, I'll start at the beginning. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled uh, to God through the death of his son. Uh, that's past tense. Um, then having been reconciled, and that's the, um, that's the blue panel down here. That's the heiress passive participle. Um, because we have been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And then in 5.11, we have the statement, not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, that's present tense, through whom we have now received uh, the reconciliation. So there is a reception of it uh, there in 5.11. So that relates to the passive voice of we were reconciled in verse 10. So that means we receive that action of reconciliation. We don't do anything to reconcile ourselves to God. But wait a minute. seems like Paul's going to say something a little bit different in 2 Corinthians 5. So we'll look at that in just a minute. So just a little summary here of, of what we have on um, about reconciliation is, first of all, the human race is in a legal state of hostility. That's really what enmity means. It's not a sense of personal animosity or hatred or personal vindictiveness on the part of God. And it certainly isn't talking about enmity in terms of what's on the human side of the equation. There's some people who want to make it that way, but the enmity is related to God's character. There is a a position of hostility that has that is in place, a status of hostility, and it's grounded in man's violation of God's judicial character. So it's a forensic state, a judicial state, and not a uh, an experiential, subjective, personal state of animosity. Second thing we learn is that no fallen human being, because they're spiritually dead, no fallen human being can change this state of hostility. There's nothing we can do. We're the prisoner in the dock we can't, with the under indictment. We can't do anything to change that. It has to be changed uh, elsewhere. Third point, that the opposite of a hostility is peace. Now, in the context of Romans 5, the peace here is also going to be a judicial peace because it grows out of our understanding of justification. You look back at verse 1, Paul says, therefore, and I believe that should be a causal participle because we have been justified by faith and that's forensic, not experiential. So if that's forensic, if the, the implication we have peace with God, that too must be forensic. So we're talking in Romans 5 about a forensic aspect to this issue of peace. The hostility is forensic. That means it's, it's, a, it's based on a legal case. And it's so interesting throughout Scripture that we have that, 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 that Scripture grounds everything that God does toward mankind on a contract. That gives it this legal framework. It, it, it's, it's about law. So that in from the very beginning, before there's even sin in the human race or in the human creation, God is grounding everything he does on the basis of the rule of law. 
And when man is operating in sin, he always wants to buck the law. He always wants to violate the law. And the more rebellious the human race becomes, the more antinomian they become, the more they reject the rule of law. And what always comes about when you reject the rule of law is either pure anarchy or pure tyranny. And so the human history of the human race always tends to move in one of those directions apart from the grace of God and the influence of Scripture. And I think we see a lot of that today in our culture as we've drifted. Uh, drifting isn't even a good word. There's, it's, it's too passive. Our Western civilization has it's almost had this seismic shift and movement that's occurred over the last 20 years, and frankly I think that's just a result of what has been going on in the previous um, 150 years. And all of a sudden it's sort of reached critical mass and you get this seismic shift as sort of the cultural tectonic plates shift and you get this radical earthquake uh, transformation that occurs to to our culture. You think about where we were uh, 25 years ago. Ronald Reagan was president. We had some, a lot of the problems we see today were, ju- were there, but they were much smaller and but but society culture was in a much different place. But a lot of decisions have been made legally, culturally, uh, socially in the last 20 years, and we've been on a trajectory. In fact, we've been on the same trajectory since it could be argued since the election of Franklin Delano Roosevelt to the presidency in uh, 1932. Uh, you could even go back bef- before that because the seeds were laid in the uh, late 19th century, but the first time you really start seeing this on more of an overt national scale, I think, is with the election of Roosevelt in 32, and then there's sort of a a pause in the action. Uh, Society hit the pause button when they went through all of the... uh, all the adversity of uh, World War, some of the Depression, but also World War II, and then they took their finger off the pause button after that. In about 1990, they started hitting the fast-forward button, and that's where we are today. Uh, so you see this, this, this collapse of society because there's a rejection of the rule of law. But the Bible lays this foundation on the rule of law that everything God does is related to law. Now, one of the side note I want to make on that is it's interesting when I was in seminary, and some of this just came together for me as I was reading, going back, rereading Romans, rereading some things I read years ago. Um, Coming out of the lovely subjective uh, 60s, where everything be, was about love and flowers. Unless, of course, you were conservative. Then it wasn't, then they, it, it, love was not directed towards conservatives or the military. But it was all about love. And, uh, it's all about emotion. And it's all about relationship. And I remember in seminary with really good seminary professors, and I've read this in print since then, that justification was the, um, uh, was the focal focus doctrine of the Reformation, but by the time because of a societal transformation, by the time we get to the 60s and 70s, the key doctrine for gospel communication is reconciliation because reconciliation is relational. 
And I've heard that a lot over the last 30 years and from, from theologians who would probably should have thought a little differently about it. Maybe time gives you a little perspective. But as I look at this dimension to reconciliation now in, in Romans and its connection with, with uh, justification, I'm thinking that there is a relational dimension to reconciliation, which is brought out more in some of the other passages. But in this passage, the focus isn't on relationship. It's on what? It's on justice. It's on law. So law precedes relationship. Isn't that interesting? Can you think of any other area in life where law and contract uh, forms the basis for that precedes a relationship? Technically, it's marriage because you establish a formal legal contract. Now, you don't know that's what's going on in most weddings because it's never emphasized, but that's exactly what's happening is the couple that's getting married is entering into a formal legal contract, and they're promising on, in, on, in a legal sense to be faithful to one another until death do us part. And the love that they are declaring to one another is a love that is divorced. If you listen to the traditional language of marriage vows, is a love that is not related to emotion because it's whether in sickness or health or whether in uh, uh, prosperity or poverty or uh, whatever the circumstances may be. And that's not related to emotion. Of course, most people only hear the good things that I'm promising to love you in, in health and in prosperity and in good times. Not They don't hear the other phrases because they've got red glasses on. They're not even rose-colored anymore. They're so subjective at that point. Years ago, the uh, Roman Catholic Church made a decision. I don't know if they carried it out or if it went any further, but I heard it announced on the news back around 1981 or 82 that they'd made a decision that in light of the high rate of divorce, that before they would um, they would agree to marry, uh, to perform a marriage, that they would have the couple go through marriage counseling at least six months before the wedding. I thought that was a good idea at the time and I tried to incorporate that because once you get within six months of the wedding, people are too subjective to know up or down or right from wrong or, or be able to think uh, objectively about their, their relationship. So if you can get six months or more away from the wedding, then maybe they have a little perspective and objectivity and can think about what they're getting ready to do. I think that even that's a little idealistic in our culture. But what we see is that relationship biblically develops once the contractual uh, relationship, the legal relationship is established. Then the personal relation builds on that because a boundary has been established uh, of security within the within the contract so that with on the basis of a legal contract now a relationship can develop so law precedes relationship and as we look at all these dimensions of salvation we see that they're grounded in in legal principle that's established by God and in and in contract law and this becomes a, a foundation for us for for understanding uh, uh, contract law. Historically, the Puritans did a lot of work with that. Okay, the fourth point is there must be a change of status. The legal penalty has to be paid. So that status of enmity that's legal 
has, it has to be transformed into a legal state of peace or harmony. Uh, that can only happen by paying the legal uh, penalty, the forensic penalty. And that, of course, is done through the substitutionary spiritual death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, having said that, in terms of introduction, I want to go to look at our other main passages on uh, reconciliation. So I want you to turn with me over to Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5. And in Second Corinthians chapter 5, we see one of the most significant passages related to uh, reconciliation. So reconciliation, what we've seen so far is reconciliation has to be grounded on a change of relationship. That's the essential meaning of reconciliation. It's a change of relationship that's grounded on uh, a change of legal legal status uh, in terms of that state of hostility. Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we have a, I mean, this is one of the great chapters in the Bible. If you want to memorize a chapter, I'd memorize Romans 8. I'd memorize the first 16 or 18 verses in John 3, and probably uh, memorize 2 Corinthians chapter uh, chapter 5. It's a tremendous, uh, tremendous chapter. But in 5, let's just go back and start at 514. Second uh, Corinthians 5.14, let me get in the right book here. Okay, Second Corinthians 5.14, this section is what introduces the discussion of reconciliation. Verse 14, Paul says, For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. So what's his starting point here? It's the same starting point he had in Romans Romans 5, 8, that, that it's God's love, and that God's love provided a substitutionary solution to the problem. Uh, God demonstrated his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So Paul's consistent because... He's not making up the theology as liberals and others would say. He is uh, absolutely brilliant because of his understanding of, of the character of God. That's the, that's the ground here is understanding the character of God. And so he says the love of God compels us or constrains us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. So this has to do with the... Uh, universality of the objective side or the judicial side of Christ's work on the cross. Uh, He died for all, verse uh, 15, he died for all, not that he saves all, that's not, it's not talking about universalism in terms of the result of his death of the cross, it's talking about uh, universalism in terms of the a focus of his death on the cross. He is dying as a substitute for all. It's a real uh, payment for sin. It's as if um, as if we were to go out to dinner, and uh, towards the end of the meal, uh, <clears throat> I got up and went to the restroom. When I came back, you'd paid the bill. You paid that bill for me. There's nothing I can do about it at that point, whether I like it or not whether I wanted you to or not, or whether I want to accept it or not, the bill is paid. 
That's that's the focal point of here. It's a real substitution. It's not hypothetical. It's not paid if I want it to be paid. It's already been put on the credit card, and it's been sent off. The deal's done. It's over with, and it's a real substitution. But that, in, in terms of salvation, that doesn't change the subjective realities of the individual being spiritually dead. It just means the objective penalty has been paid, and that's the essence of the the whole uh, phraseology here of dying for uh, someone. And it, it took me a long time to work through this because this is a, one of those arguments that is used by those who believe in limited atonement because they, they I think, confuse uh, Christ's death and paying the objective penalty with making the subjective change. And so they say, well, if Christ died for all, if all means everyone, then that means everyone gets saved. And so they, they miss the point that Christ's payment of the objective penalty doesn't change, automatically change the subjective reality in each person of being spiritually dead and unrighteous. It just means the external penalty is paid in relation to the character of God. So the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. This has to do with that, the payment of that spiritual death penalty for sin. He died for all, that is, as a substitute for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves. Those who live, that limits it now. Those who live within the context of Paul's theology, those who live are those who put their faith alone in Christ alone, and the, the purpose for the payment of the objective penalty is so there is a subjective application when people believe in Jesus, and the purpose isn't just so they have eternal life and can go to heaven, but that their life will be transformed and they won't live like uh, self-centered, self-absorbed, whiny two-year-olds anymore, but they'll start living uh, for God in light of God's plan or purpose. That is, they, they will live for him who died for them and rose again. In other words, there's going to be a focal point shift in your vision of your life, or there should be as you get some doctrine, as you begin to grow, and it's not just all about you anymore, is that you realize that your life is all about Christ, and it's always just all about Christ, and it's never about us anymore, and it never really was about us anymore, but we convinced ourselves under the blindness of the sin nature to think that our life was really all about us. It was about our hopes, our dreams, our desires, uh, whatever those were, and it never was about that. It was always about God's plan, period. Now, verse 16 uh, just doesn't contribute to the line of thought where I'm going, so I'm going to skip to his conclusion, which or, where he stair steps to the next level of the argument in verse 17. He says, Therefore... Because this has happened, this objective payment of the penalty, he says if anyone is in Christ, now now we're at that point of talking about the person who has trusted in the gospel, has trusted, believed Jesus died on the cross for their sins. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. This is what occurs at salvation. So we've gone from talking about this, this substitutionary atonement idea of verses 14 and 15, which is objective, and legal and happened historically in 33, uh, AD 33. And now in verse 17, we're talking about the subjective application 
if anyone is in Christ, and the only way to be in Christ is to trust in him, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit identifies us with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, and the result of that is we're a new creation. We have that newness of life, qualitative newness of life, um, of Romans 6, 4. We are a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So this fits with what, what we've studied in Colossians on Sunday morning. There's this death, this positional death. We died with Christ at the cross so that we can be uh, alive to this new life in Christ. The old man is dead. Everything that we were before we were saved is dead and gone. And we're a new creature in Christ. Everything is new. Doesn't feel new because you still have a sin nature. We're still in our, our mortal body and we still have to live with this rotten, perverted world system that surrounds us. But it's only as we study the Word of God do we suddenly have our eyes open to the spiritual realities that have taken place internally, which change our whole relationship to whatever's going on around us externally. So if anyone is in Christ, and that would apply to almost everyone here as far as I know, uh, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation, a new creature. Old things have passed away. Whatever you were before you were saved is, is gone, and all things have become new. That happened instantly at salvation. There's not a second work of grace. There's not a, some secret that you have to figure out. It's a reality that, that happened, and now we've got to figure out what, learn what all the dimensions of that are and how it changes things. Verse 18 says, now, okay, so see, we've gone from what Christ did on the cross to what happened when you trusted Christ as Savior and became a new creature in Christ to now, all things are of God, orienting back to it's about the plan of God, not it's about his plan, not our plan. All things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. All things are of God who has reconciled himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. So the first thing we see here about reconciliation is that God is the one who does the work of reconciliation. This is, again, the same verb we have over in Romans 5, katalasso, and here it's an aorist active participle, which means it's going to be modifying the main verb in some way. All things are of God who, who has reconciled us, and so it relates to, uh, it's an attributive uh, participle here, actually uh, related to God and his action. God is the one who's reconciled us. God does the action we don't. God reconciled us. So the human, so the human race, and here in this passage, it's believers are reconciled to God. There, there are the ones who are changed, not, not God. So, uh, whereas propitiation was God word directed towards his righteousness and his justice, reconciliation is man word related to changing that, that status. The, it was the objective status related to the law in Romans 5, here it's related to the subjective uh, application of it in each individual believer. God reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. 
or the message of uh, reconciliation uh, as it's stated in verse 19. So verse 19 goes on to say that is that God was in Christ. That's got to be historical at the cross. God was in Christ reconciling the world. Now, he, the world is a term for all of the inhabitants of the planet. It's the same object as you have in uh, John 3.16 that God loved the world in this way. So the object of God's love, the object of his reconciliation is the world conceived of as unbelievers. That's Romans 5.8. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, God demonstrated his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, so that, that it's not God contemplating the world as e- those who will be elect, limiting it to the uh, Calvinist limited atonement perspective, but God oriented to the, all of the inhabitants of the world who are hostile to him because of the violation of the law, and he is working to change that dynamic, that legal basis, so that he is free then to uh, provide uh, individual salvation. So verse 19 reads that, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. That has to do with individual imputation. See, we're not condemned for our individual sins, we're condemned for Adam's original sin. We sin because we were already fallen because of Adam's original sin. It's that old fundamental saying, do you sin because you're a sinner or are you a sinner because you sin? And a lot of people will say, oh, well, I'm a sinner because I sin. No, you sin because you're a sinner. You're a sinner because as a uh, at birth you received the imputation of Adam's original sin which made you a fallen creature with a sinful nature and because you have a sinful nature you then sin. So our condemnation is not based on personal sin, imputing our individual personal sin to us. Our condemnation was based on Adam's original sin which is imputed to every member of the human race. Now we're going to get into that a little bit more and discuss some of the theological uh, issues and positions related to that when we get into uh, Romans 5.12 and following. Uh, so all things of God has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us a ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing the trespasses to them, and has committed to us the, re- the word of reconciliation. So word of reconciliation in verse 19 is parallel to ministry of reconciliation. So how does the ministry of reconciliation operate? The ministry of reconciliation operates by communicating the the message of reconciliation, which is the word of reconciliation stated in verse 19. So we see that God performs the action and the world seen and perceived as fallen in a state of hostility, receives the action. And so sins, that is, personal sins, are not imputed to the unbeliever. They're not the issue at salvation. Now, that's that's huge because most people who are not Christians think that the whole issue is all their petty little sins. And whether their petty little sins are petty to them or petty to their families or petty to the judicial system, 
their petty little sins are petty because they don't stand up to the the significance of Adam's original sin, which plunged the entire human race into, into sin. It's not our sins that are the basis of our condemnation. So we are committed to have we have this message of reconciliation. That's evangelism. That is communicating the gospel, the good news to people that you are no longer in a legal status of hostility to God because Christ's uh, death reconciled us, but that doesn't change your eternal destiny. That only comes if you accept the gospel and then you are personally reconciled to God, and that's verse 20. Now then, Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ. Now, an ambassador is someone who is a citizen of one nation, who is appointed by the uh, governing authority of that nation and is under the authority of that nation and is sent as a representative to another, uh, another nation. And even though he is living in another country, even though uh, he, has, uh, uh, he is going to do what he can to live as closely to the customs of that co- uh, country without uh, violating his own uh, background, his own home, uh, he goes to represent his, his nation. They're representatives, and that's who we are as believers. We are representatives of Christ, and he, we, we're under his authority. That doesn't mean that as human citizens of the United States, we don't vote, don't get involved in things. Some people took that a little too far. Um, but this is talking about our spiritual relationship. We're ambassadors for Christ as though, and Paul uses this phrase because he's dealing with an analogy here to an ambassador, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you, and this is what the plea would be, we are pleading with people, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. It's interesting, as I read through that, a story that someone told me years ago came to my mind. Um, back in about 19, I guess, 81 or 82, I just graduated from seminary and been a pastor for about a year and went back to seminary. And I ran into another fellow that I had gone through seminary with uh, who came out of a doctrinal church up in, uh, up in Lufkin in East Texas. And he had graduated, I think, a year before I did, and he was pastoring a church up in uh, Missouri somewhere. And one of his leaders in his church, and now remember this is 1981, had been uh, living in Dallas as a, as a college student back in 1949. So this was going back uh, some 30, 32 years. And when he was a college student, he was going to a uh, church in the Garland area of Dallas and that the, uh, the pastor of that church was a uh, seminary student at the time. And he told the story of how he would go, this, this uh, pastor who had taken over this church when it was almost ready to fail, would go out visiting whoever had visited the church on Sunday morning, and he would go out on Monday night, and he would knock on the doors of all of those people who had visited on Sunday and would go in. He said, you wouldn't believe it if you knew him now, but back then he would go into the house uh, and he would talk to people. He said, I have seen him weep with people, pleading with them to trust in Christ as their Savior. 
and that was Pastor Theme when he was a student at Dallas Seminary. So uh, that always comes to mind when I read through this passage, that we are to plead and implore with people to be reconciled to God because we understand uh, the dimensions. The word for pleading there is the idea of summoning, inviting, urging, encouraging, imploring someone uh, to do that. It's the word uh, parakaleo. And then they are commanded to be reconciled. So this is a command to the individual. So on the one hand, God is in Christ at the cross reconciling the world to himself. That's objective. And that happened at the cross because that provides then the basis for uh, the, the shift in the world's orientation to God from hostility to peace at, at one sense uh, so that we now plead with each individual to apply that in terms of their own personal individual orientation uh, to God. And so we are to uh, plead with people to be reconciled. It's not just automatic. And so here is a chart that's familiar to most of you where we have on the left side all the different dimensions of sin and the sin problem, and on the right all the theological uh, aspects that solve the problems on the left. Sin is solved by unlimited atonement, the penalty of sin by the payment of the penalty, redemption. The character of God problem is solved by propitiation, and this is all Godward. And these aspects, propitiation, redemption, atonement, are all said in the New Testament to be for all people. That's Godward related. But the individual problems that every person has, the fact that they are unrighteous, the fact that they are spiritually dead, the fact that they're an Adam, these are only solved by imputation and justification, regeneration, and our uh, new position in Christ only when the individual believes in Jesus as Savior. There's no other name, Luke says in Acts, or Peter says actually in Acts 4, there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. But reconciliation is a term that relates objectively to the all of this that has taken place at the cross objectively so that sin isn't the issue anymore. The issue is, are we going to accept what Christ has done for us? That then takes us over to uh, Colossians, and uh, we studied this when we went through Colossians. In Colossians 1, so turn over a few pages through Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians 1. and Colossians 1.20, we're told... Uh, for please the Father, that in him that is in Christ all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself. And how, when did that happen? That's got to be objective at the cross. By him to reconcile all things to himself. Uh, by him are the things on the earth, on heaven, and have made peace through the blood of his cross. So that's the objective aspect of, of, uh, of that payment. And it is done through Christ. Now, here we have the word apokatalasso. It's got a prefix on that verb, same verb, katalasso, with this apa prefix, which means to reconcile completely. Nothing's left undone. See, that fits with what Paul is saying in, in, in Colossians, that Christ's death is sufficient. So he's going to intensify the verb to make sure the Colossians understand that nothing was left out at the cross. Jesus didn't drop a sin or two and uh, so that you suddenly commit some sin that uh, wasn't paid for. It was uh, 
completely paid for. And then we have that same word, apokatalaso, used over in Ephesians 2.16, that he might reconcile them both. Remember, that passage talks about Jew and Gentile. There's a, there's a human or horizontal dimension to, to enmity that is secondary. That relates to Jew versus Gentile. And so since uh, because of the cross, Jew and Gentile are reconciled, and then... Uh, and that's done by putting to death the enmity. But that enmity is not an enmity between Jew and Gentile. It's an enmity between Jew and Gentile on the one side and God in heaven because the enmities, uh, there's enmity because of the violation of God's uh, character. So all things are to be reconciled, are reconciled according to Colossians 1.20. And... We conclude that reconciliation is the work of God for man in which God undertakes to transform man's position of hostility, legal animosity, not personal animosity, to peace in order to make possible an actual eternal fellowship with a righteous and just God. So the objective aspect of reconciliation is Godward and is related to, but not the same as, propitiation. So we say that reconciliation was accomplished forensically or in a legal sense once and for all by Christ on the cross. And then it is applied to each believer positionally only when a person has trusted in Christ. That's the uh, subjective uh, aspect that takes place when we... Uh, trust in Christ as Savior. So now when we go back and we look at uh, Romans 5 and its relation to justification, we see how Paul is looking at one dimension of reconciliation in Romans 5, and that is the objective aspect that is resolved at the cross. But because his readers have trusted in Christ and have been justified, they are reconciled. So he speaks to them in terms of their current position in Christ, and he says because of that we can now rejoice because as a current reality, not just because in the future we're going to spend eternity in heaven, but we rejoice now. We have joy now in our Christian life because we have received this reconciliation, and we are in harmony with God. And it's on the basis of that then that we can drive forward in our, in our life and experience the rich abundance that God has for us. Now, that's where he's going to go in chapter 6. But between uh, verse 11 of chapter 5 and verse 1 of chapter 6, we have to uh, plow through some uh, pretty heavy uh, theological or doctrinal verses to understand all this foundation because this is germane to understanding the richness of our new spiritual life, our new life in Christ, and everything that that has been provided for us. So we'll start digging our way through uh, uh, 5.12 and following uh, next Thursday night. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded of all that you have done for us, and and we need to be, be reminded every now and then of just how how hopeless and helpless we were uh, prior to salvation and how uh, hopeless and helpless the condition of humanity was before uh, the cross and that the only reason we have any hope in life and the only reason we have any uh, any peace uh, is because of what you initiated through the plan of salvation from uh, 
uh, conception and eternity past through the Old Testament preparation up to the cross and then what happens in each of our lives at the instant of salvation. Too often we fail to fully comprehend, think, and meditate and reflect upon all that you have done for us. And only when we do so does the Holy Spirit really have the opportunity to use the doctrine and use your word to to begin to impact and transform our thinking that we may uh, experience that fullness and richness of life that we are promised by our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would help us to think through these things personally and reflect upon them. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.